Kindred. How are you guys? Yeah, I missed you all last week. Um, I know that we've only been doing this for, you know, 13 weeks or so. Um, but I truly look forward to Wednesdays. They kind of anchor my week and they ground me. And so I did have serious FOMO last week, not being here. Um, but don't worry, we made it back just in time for the epic blizzard. So that was great timing. It couldn't have snowed while we were gone. Um, but either way, I'm really excited to be back and to be with you tonight. So we have been uh, mostly chronologically studying the life of Jesus. And we've been highlighting some moments that we find significant or that have something to say to us, even now, thousands of years after they happened. And we are at this point in Jesus's ministry where something shifts. So when you read it, it reads differently than the last 12 chapters that we've been in. And so it kind of sticks out. So far, the book of Matthew has read like a narrative. And when Jesus speaks or teaches, he speaks plainly or as a matter of fact. But now in chapter 13, Jesus begins using parables to explain what the kingdom of God is like, what this reign and this rule and this new reality that he has come to establish that is available to us is going to be like. And so Zach introduced us to what a parable is last week, and he gave us this definition. A parable is a story that casts an analogy next to a truth. And this series of Jesus' teaching, it's distinguishable because it is entirely in parables, which is something that we haven't seen Jesus do yet. But it's not arbitrary. There is a reason that Jesus has used this form of storytelling to communicate a message, something about who he is and what he's come here to do. Because stories are powerful, right? I don't think we need to be convinced of that. Zach touched on this last week too, but stories have been woven just into the fabric of our life, right? Since we've been little kids, right? Fairy tales and bedtime stories, right? Turn into coming of age stories. And then those turn into grand love stories and epic tales of friendship and adventure. And so think about some of your favorites, your favorite movie or TV series. Uh, mine's a little embarrassing, so I'm not going to reveal it with a microphone. Um, they know don't captivate us just because they're entertaining, but usually because they deal with a very real part of life that we have bumped up against. And they help us make sense of our own experience or our own memories with a bit of distance. And so when we hear a story, we don't feel attacked or defensive right, or judged. I've heard it put this way, which I think is really good. Stories have a way of sneaking past the defenses of the heart. Stories have a way of sneaking past those defenses. So we can watch a story play out without being a part of it ourselves and then find ways that we relate to it later or go back and see how we relate to some of the characters without having been a part of it. And these stories, they always communicate something about the way the world works. And the really good ones, the really good ones always stick with us. Maybe you've had this experience where after you finish a book or you watch a movie, it kind of messes with you. It it almost disturbs you, right? To the point that days later, you're still kind of obsessing and thinking about the characters. Or maybe you find yourself replaying a part of what you just watched or read, trying to figure out what it is it was saying. Or maybe you find yourself in a conversation days later using a part of this story to explain something to a parent or a friend or your child. 
And will the parables Jesus is about to tell do that too? They're a bit of a paradox, meaning in one way, they'll reveal something on the surface about God and about his kingdom, but they also conceal meaning and they conceal truth in a story that's meant to be investigated, in a story that sticks with you and makes you ask questions, in a story that the meaning isn't so obvious at first, but it requires some wrestling. And so hold on to this idea about the nature of stories and how they have a way around the defenses of our heart, because we're going to come back to it. So let's get to one of the first parables um, that Jesus tells. So we're in Matthew chapter 13. You can follow along using the digital program or pull up your Bible app, or if you've got the real thing with pages, you can flip um, to Matthew chapter 13. But it has been a busy day for Jesus. So he has healed the blind. He's had to explain that his power is not satanic, but he's actually empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's had a run-in with some Pharisees. There was a little tiff. They were asking him to kind of show off, prove who he was. And then later on this evening, Jesus will go on to calm a storm and he'll heal a man who was living in a graveyard who'd been possessed by demons. So just a casual day in the life for Jesus. Right, but this first parable, it actually serves to set up the rest of the ones that are going to follow. And so Jesus is actually being very meta right now. He uses a story to describe the kinds of reactions to the stories he's about to tell. Right? And that sentence alone makes my brain kind of hurt, so let's just get into it and read it. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. And as he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun. And since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even a hundred times as much as has been planted. So anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. So Jesus is painting a picture here with his words. And it's a picture that for us might be a little difficult to connect to in 2021, but this would have been a very familiar picture to the people of the ancient world that he was talking to. So in Jesus's agricultural society, farmers would walk across their field with a sack of seed and they would grab handfuls of it and then disperse it across the ground. But interestingly, they wouldn't plow before they planted. That is something we've come to do now. But there wasn't a way then for the sower or the farmer to know exactly what kind of soil they were dealing with. And so in this story, the soil represents the condition of the human heart. And then the seed is meant to represent truth or the word of God. And so in this way, Jesus is describing four different responses to hearing the truth about God's design for our life. And a few verses later, Jesus will actually give us some more insight into what these four distinctions are that he's making. And so let's kind of walk through them one by one. The first is the path. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. And then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. And so the hard path is a heart with no desire to listen. 
It's been calloused, it's impenetrable. And so in the same way that a seed can't take root in a slab of concrete, Jesus is describing that this is the condition or the posture of some people's heart towards the word of God. It's been hardened. It's unwilling to listen or understand or receive. And Jesus acknowledges here too that there is an enemy. There are forces of evil and darkness in the world that are battling against God working to tear down this kingdom he's trying to establish. And those forces, they can work against the word of God in someone's heart, stealing away the potential for that seed to settle and to grow roots. The second kind of soil is shallow or it's rocky soil. Jesus explains the seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing in God's word. So rocky soil describes someone who is eager and who is open and willing to accept and hear the truth about God. And usually this comes with a lot of passion and zeal in the beginning, right? Coming to faith is exciting. You don't wanna miss church every week. You're there every single time, right? You start downloading prayers and devotionals and different translations of the Bible. You might go through your old Instagram feed and like censor some of the pics from college, right? That don't really fit this new Way of life anymore. Right? You might be eager to jump into opportunities to serve and connect because there's joy about being new to faith. But Jesus goes on to say that it's short-lived and this seed doesn't grow into crop. Well, why? Right? Because the soil is shallow. And so when circumstances or hardship or trouble challenges this new way of living, these seeds, they, they fall away or as soon as living according to the word of God becomes inconvenient or a disadvantage, or it's not working the way we thought it would, it becomes easier to reject it or abandon it. And then third, Jesus talks about soil riddled with weeds. He says, the seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is, is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, and so no fruit is produced. And it's important that we picture something correctly here. So he's not describing a seed like dropped into a patch of weeds. That would be a little ridiculous to expect crop, right, to grow from a thorn bustle. Right? Instead, we should picture the way that good seeds and weeds are in competition the way that they grow up together. And then eventually these weeds overwhelm and overcome and beat out the truth we've been able to hear about God. And so Jesus is clear to point out a few things that often compete for our faith. He talks about worry, how worry has this unique way of suffocating our faith, how worry is this symptom of our distrust in God our distrust that he'll take care of us or provide for us or that he would be good to us. And so in our worry, it usually leads us away from the truth as we try to cope and control and manipulate our circumstances. So does the pursuit of money and of pleasure. And those seem fairly obvious. 
I think the analogy of this weedy soil is helpful and it's a relevant one because it reveals the countless ideas that are competing in our heart for allegiance. How the ways of culture and the world, they grow up alongside God's word. And how for a time, maybe these other ideas, they seem small or insignificant. But if you've ever had weeds in your backyard, one day it seems like they're not there. And then the next day, they've taken over your entire yard. Right? And they have overwhelmed the truth you've been able to hear. And then lastly, Jesus describes good soil. When he says the seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word. And they produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as has been planted. And so good soil then is defined by true hearing. So not just the physical act of discerning audible sounds in our ears, but the kind of hearing marked by understanding and obedience. So good soil is about what someone does with the word of God. Not just what they think about it, not just what they feel about it, not just how much they know about it, but how a person lives based on their understanding and their obedience. Now, I think we have to be careful, right? Not to condemn any of these soils too quickly, right? Because it's obvious in reading it that the most desirable is clearly the fourth one, the good soil, right? And wouldn't we all like to think that our hearts are good soil? And the temptation with this parable would be to use it like a rubric, right, for our own hearts or something I think is more dangerous, which is to judge the condition of somebody else's heart. But here's what I discovered when studying this passage a little bit more closely that I think protects us from some of that. It keeps us from using this as a sentence or a diagnosis or a prognosis. And an author much smarter than me put it this way. All soil is essentially the same. So what's in a human heart? We've all got some of the same stuff going on. We all have a desire to be known, to belong, to be accepted, to be loved. But the difference is what obstacles have been added into the mix, be it rocks or weeds or or just a good trampling. And so in the case of the hard path, I know for me, I am quick to imagine this kind of person as hostile, as combative and cynical, wanting absolutely nothing to do with Jesus for no good reason, at least no good reasons that I can come up with or can see. And I think we forget that the hard path was once soil and it has been trampled and run over and crushed under the boots of someone else for a really long time. We forget that there still might be good soil underneath all that hardened concrete, but years of neglect or hurt or betrayal have blocked it off, have made it impenetrable. And in the case of the shallow soil, we might picture this person as fickle or wishy-washy or even fake or with all of their zeal and exuberance only to abandon their convictions when it doesn't serve their interests anymore. We might be tempted to write off this person as as a sellout. And maybe that's the case for some people. But really, I think we forget just the crushing weight of some of these rocks. The weight they have on our life, the way roots can get stunted 
by a diagnosis or by loss or by intense grief. And in the case of the weeds, I think we're quick to belittle others as weak, like you gave in or you're greedy or you're selfish when they concede to things like worry or wealth or whim. And we forget just how subversive and stealth and strong the power of weeds like individualism and like nationalism and like consumerism really are and how we too have grown up amongst these weeds. We're not immune to the way they compete for allegiance in our heart. And maybe how there's even been times where we have succumbed to their seduction. And so the soil is potentially good in each human heart, but the difference is the will, the will to truly hear and listen and understand, the will to wrestle and ask questions, the will to do something different with what you know now. And our will has been impacted and obstructed by all different kinds of things, by the schemes of the enemy, by the rocky circumstances of life, by these competing ideologies and the ways of the world, causing us to put up defenses and walls and gates around our heart, making the truth of Jesus challenging to hear and receive. And so the application for tonight is less about grading what kind of soil you might be or, or judging like what somebody else might be, but the teaching of Jesus in this moment is about those defenses of the heart and discerning how does one win the will of a human heart that's been hardened into path or that's rocky and shallow or that's been choked out by thorns and thistles. And it's stories, it's stories. See, Jesus knows that stories have a way of sneaking past those defenses of our heart. And so he has designed his teaching in this way on purpose. And at first, it might seem kind of confusing or maybe even cruel that Jesus would speak in these veiled parables, knowing not everybody is ready to hear it or accept what he has to say. That seems a little bit um, exclusive, of Jesus, doesn't it? Like he only cares about the good soil people, but doesn't he also care about the soil that's been hardened or has gotten mixed up with other stuff? And yes, yes, he does. And Jesus understands our hearts better than we do sometimes. And so he doesn't force or coerce truth on people in heated arguments or pointed accusations. He doesn't badger people who are unwilling or just not prepared to hear the truth or the word of God. He knows, he knows that doing that would only raise those defenses, right? And, and exacerbate them. And so he uses a story. He uses a word picture that they can come back to, giving them repeated chances to respond beyond just this moment that we're in. And so now, now they have this story that they carry with them. And so maybe now the next time, right, this farmer is in his field or maybe the next time, right, someone is walking past their neighbor's house and they see the way the birds come down and take away the seed off the path. Or they notice the withered plants, right, along the rocky edges of their field or they're having to sift through and separate the weeds from their crop, or maybe the next time they go, right, to reap the harvest, 
they're now presented an opportunity right, to consider and to wrestle with this truth that at first they weren't ready to hear. This is actually the most loving approach right, to the hearts that Jesus knows are calloused or are fickle or are burdened. So what might look like a swift, harsh judgment on the surface, we come to see that the parable is actually a gesture of profound mercy and kindness because that's who Jesus is. And so if you want to evaluate what soil you might be, that might be a helpful exercise or takeaway from this parable. But might I suggest another application, especially for those of us in the room who call ourselves followers of Jesus. I think we need to follow his example in this way. So something I've come to hear amongst Christians quite a bit that makes me kind of cringe is this posture that that we've adopted as truth tellers or as people who are supposed to speak truth into somebody's life. And and it makes me wanna cringe because when I think of well-intentioned Christians who have gotten this idea about truth a little confused, I think we usually approach those conversations or interactions with a different posture. And we're argumentative and we're accusatory and we're mean and we're angry. And so this parable of the sower, it challenges me to consider how Jesus didn't attack people with the truth. He didn't force a conversation or a conversion when somebody wasn't ready or open to it. He wasn't abrasive or combative with the word of God, but he told stories. He cast an analogy against the truth and it gave people an opportunity to consider what he had to say with a little bit of distance so they didn't feel defensive. And he provided them this profound picture that they could then return to over and over and over. And so my question for us tonight is, what has our approach been to sharing the truth? Have we been a little belligerent and angry and forceful? And are we telling good stories? If stories have a way of sneaking past the defenses of the heart more effectively than logic or sound reason or by showing off just how much we know, if stories are more effective in capturing the will of a person more than an attack on their character or a lecture about the state of their sin or their life or their heart, I believe we should be prepared to tell a story instead, to tell our story to tell a story about what our life looked like before we encountered Jesus and what reservations or questions or hesitations that we had, what we had to wrestle through. What has our journey to belief looked like? Was it instantaneous? Or was it more of a slow progression and evolution over time? And so what about your life has Jesus transformed? What is he still transforming? What story does your life tell about the truth of Jesus? And are you prepared to tell it? Are you prepared to share it? I wanna close just with this. Is that the beauty in all of this soil stuff is that no matter what kind of soil exists in a person's heart, so no matter how hardened or how rocky or shallow or how full of weeds it might be, soil 
is ultimately not what makes a seed grow. And while stories are important and powerful, and I believe we should make good use of ours, no matter how compelling or well we tell a story, it's not a story that makes a seed grow. It is only God that makes a seed grow. It is his spirit alone that has to grab a hold of someone's heart, no matter what condition it might be in and grow a seed into something like a harvest. And so I'm reminded of this verse that Paul wrote in this letter to the Corinthians that I think captures this so well. He writes, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. And so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything or gets the credit, but only God who makes things grow. Only God, only Jesus can truly transform a human heart. And so we're going to introduce you, Kindred, to a new song tonight. And it's about declaring that truth that only Jesus, only his spirit can accomplish the work of transformation. Only the name of Jesus can take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Only the name of Jesus can bring dead things back to life. Only the name of Jesus can offer our hearts everything we truly desire that we have been looking for in some of the wrong places. Only Jesus has the power to save us and reconnect us back to our good Father. So Kindred, I invite you to stand. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing this new song together. God, thank you for who you are. God, that you are kind and merciful and good and gentle, God. God, I'm thankful that you are a God of stories. God, that you understand our hearts because you made us. And so you know, God, that sometimes an attack or an accusation, God, or anger or an affront is going to raise those defenses. And so God, you were so good to us to use story. God, to sneak past those things and speak to the very corners of our heart, God. So I pray tonight, God, that you would help us to soften. God, soften our posture and our approach to, to some of the ways that maybe we have been trying to shove the truth in someone's face when they're not ready for it, God. God, would you show us how to use our own story, the story of what you have done in our heart and in our life to communicate something good to somebody else and to the world. Jesus, I love you and I need you. And I pray these things in your name, amen.